It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Friday, May 29, 2009. Always much to do around here at Fighting for the Faith. I must warn you, apple carts will be overturned. Money changers' tables will be thrown down. Sacred cows will be slaughtered. That's right. Well, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chris Roseborough, your servant in Jesus Christ, and you are listening to Fighting for the Faith, the program that your pastor may have warned you about. Uh, this program doesn't pull any punches, and it's not for girly sissy people who do not like things that are politically incorrect. No, we do the politically incorrect thing, and we call a spade a spade, and we even have fun along the way. And what do we do here? Well, we dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying to the Word of God. So many people think that, oh, the only way of really knowing whether or not something is true is whether or not the person telling you is sincere. And if they're telling you something from the heart, I mean, you could just feel it's true. If that's your definition of truth, then um, this program would basically be like a wrecking ball against a brick wall. And uh, it could definitely uh, cause things to be upset in your life. So I, I give you that warning ahead of time because uh, there's a few people out there who've uh, deemed it necessary to send me emails to let me know that I need to change the way I do my program. Um, I didn't ask these people to listen to my program, and uh, that's purely voluntary. In fact, if you're listening right now, this is a voluntary act on your part. I'm not holding a gun to your head, and nor will I make you drink Kool-Aid, even though we do send out secret coded messages from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, well, that's a different story. And only you who've been initiated and have our Fighting for the Faith secret decoder ring are capable of decoding these messages like this one right here attention f4f listeners if you have your f4f decoder ring set it to zulu tango foxtrot alpha setting three prepare to receive an incoming coded message have it those of you in the know are in the know <laughs> anyway all right well we got a great program lined up today it's friday and from time to time i like to take fridays a little bit lighter if you would but uh, it's not this isn't exactly a light program uh, let me just put it this way y'all watch sesame street and uh, sesame street you know being brought to you by the letter q the number three 
and the letter R. Well, today's uh, edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the church at Laodicea. That's right, that wonderful church at Laodicea. Why am I saying that? (laughs) Why is today's broadcast brought to you by the church at Laodicea? Well, funny enough, as I was doing my program preparation, spend a lot of time reading and uh, going through news stories and finding things that I think are interesting, uh, I found it prophetic, if you would, uh, that the winner of this year's National Spelling Bee, her name is Kavya Shavashkinad. I can't pronounce this girl's name. Mr. Rosebro, for $100,000, could you spell Kavna Shavashkinad? Could you please use that in a sentence? Anyway, the, the girl, she's a 13-year-old girl. We'll just call her Kavya for right now. Uh, the winning word, the winning word at this year's uh, spelling bee was Laodicean. I kid you not. I'm. Here, this is from the Associated Press. Uh, Dateline Washington. Uh, it's safe to say that the best is yet to come for the new national spelling champion. She's only just become a teenager. She's probably. Uh, she'll probably keep her competitive juices flowing by entering into the international uh, brain bee, the perfect contest for an aspiring neurosurgeon. Yes, 13-year-old girl, and she already wants to be a neurosurgeon. When I was 13 years old, I was playing Atari. Those of you who don't know what that is, look it up on Wikipedia. Quote, but I don't think anything can replace spelling, Kavya said. Uh, Spelling has been such a big part of my life. On her fourth and final try, the Kansas girl who flashed a sweet smile... With every word, won the Scripps National Spelling Bee on Thursday night, outlasting 10 other finalists to take home the more than $40,000 in cash and prizes and, of course, the huge champion's trophy. The competitiveness is in her, but she doesn't show that, said her father, uh, Merle. I cannot pronounce his last name. Yeah, she still has that smile. That's her quality. Kavya became the seventh Indian American in 11 years to claim the title, including back-to-back winners who want to be neurosurgeons. So if if you want to be a neurosurgeon and you're in the eighth grade or you're, you're like 12, 13 years old, there's a good chance you can win a spelling bee. Her role uh, model is, uh, is the one who started the run 1999 winner, Nupar Lala, uh, who was featured in the documentary, uh, documentary Spellbound and is now a research assistant in the uh, Brain and Cognitive Sciences Lab at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I thank God that there are people that are this smart. Anyway, we continue with the story. Kavya from Olathe, Kansas, was an obvious favorite, having finished 10th. Eighth and fourth in her three previous appearances, her winning word was the proper adjective Laodicean, which means lukewarm or indifferent in religion or in politics. As with all her words, Kavya wrote the letters in the palm of her hand with her finger as she called them out. Anyway, so her winning word was Laodicean. I just consider that to be so prophetic. Why? Well, because I think you could describe what's going on in the, in the church in the United States and in other Western nations to be just downright Laodicean. <laughs> Don't believe me? Well, <clears throat> I would like to uh, read something to you uh, from uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, yeah, that's right, from the book of Revelation. 
And, uh, in fact, what we're going to do here, just to kind of set things up here, I'm going to read to you the letter that Jesus Christ had dictated to the Apostle John at, for the church at Laodicea. And then I'm going to pray, uh, play for you just a little segment from a television series that I fell in love with a couple of years ago called Drive Through History. Now, I understand that this the, the program appears from time to time on Trinity Broadcast Network, but don't put the guys at Coldwater Media into the same camp as these uh, televangelists. They're far from it. Um, I, I discovered Drive Through History uh, when it was on uh, the uh, History International channel, and they've done a fine job of, uh, in fact, if you haven't seen the series, it's worth getting or renting if maybe you can get it off Netflix. But, um, you know, just especially their, their, their archaeological work in Greece, Rome, uh, Turkey, uh, the, the, and the series they put together, Drive Through History, very, very fascinating, well done, and humorous, which one of the, is one of the things I like. So I, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read uh, the, the words of Jesus Christ to the church at Laodicea. We're going to listen to a little bit about uh, the, the archaeological significance of Laodicea and how this letter would have impacted them from the Drive Through History series. And then we're going to... Uh, Dive into today's program, taking a look at what I would consider examples of Laodicean Christianity here in the United States. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn in Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14. I read from the English Sanctified Version from my computerized Bible, uh, the software known as Accordance for the Macintosh. We read, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing but realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Notice that this famous passage here, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, uh, the picture is not of Jesus standing at the door of your heart. This is a picture of Jesus standing outside of the door of the church of Laodicea. What's Jesus doing on the outside of that door? You you see the absurdity of the picture there? The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, now, so there there we go. That's Revelation chapter 13, verses 14 through 22. Jesus' very words dictated to the apostle John and uh, specifically to be delivered to the church in Laodicea. And unfortunately, uh, it appears that churches in the United States have gone the way of the Laodiceans. Now, to give you a little bit of the archaeological significance of uh, the, the site at Laodicea and how that plays into that letter that you just heard, I turn you over to uh, drive-through history. 
And uh, I think this is John Stotts is this kid's name. And uh, he's at the uh, he's at the archaeological site in Laodicea there in Turkey. And here's what they have to say. Now, Laodicea was the end point for several Roman aqueducts, making it a commercial boom town in Asia Minor. The three L's of a successful ancient Roman city are location, location, location. The city of Laodicea, the ruins of which are all around me, sat smack dab in the middle of some of the most prosperous areas of Western Asia Minor. 15 miles to the north, Hierapolis. 10 miles to the east, Colossae, whose cold water springs bubbled up and fed into this region. The Lycus River flows next to Laodicea, which made the textile industry extremely prosperous. Clearly, the Laodiceans felt very secure in their wealth and their prosperity. And why not? By the time the Romans took over, the city was thriving. It was known for a flourishing banking industry. The textile and wool trade was a cash cow for the Laodiceans. And there was even a lucrative medical school that developed ear and eye ointment. They had money, sold nice clothes, and produced eye medicine. Which is ironic since the city is called poor, naked, and blind in the New Testament book of Revelation. In fact, of the seven churches addressed in the Apostle John's letter, the only one to whom Jesus has nothing positive to say is the church in Laodicea. And he uses imagery that would have hit the Laodiceans right between the eyes. He tells them this. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Do you get the picture? Laodicea knew the therapeutic value of hot water. Their neighbors in Hierapolis had built an empire around the precious resource. They also knew the value of cold water because nearby Colossae was known for its fresh cold springs that bubbled out of the ground. But the Laodiceans produced neither hot nor cold water. And many historians say the water the aqueducts brought to Laodicea only provided water that was tepid and tasteless, not really valuable for anything, not to mention a little repulsive. So the comparison of the Laodicean Christians to lukewarm water would have been for them a profound criticism. Jesus wanted his followers to be fully committed and useful for his purposes, and the half-hearted Laodiceans were offensive to him and useless for his kingdom. But Jesus had intended his church to be countercultural, with a presence and a message that would stand out and change the world, not be changed by it, and certainly not be compromised with the culture around it. Apparently, many of the Christians in Laodicea had sold out to the culture. It had become a city so blinded by affluence that it couldn't even see its own precarious position in world history. The city of Laodicea, by the time of the Middle Ages, was completely gone, with nothing left but a small hill of unnoticed ruins. Uh, so there you have it. A little bit of historical background on the Laodicean church. Uh, they were completely consumed by the culture around them rather than being, quote, counter-cultural. Does that sound familiar to... Uh, anyway, the guy's name is Dave Stotts, by the way. That's the uh, narrator there. Um, any, does that sound familiar to any of you people? Well, today's program, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is dedicated to... Is brought to you by the church 
at Laodicea. Laodicea, that's right. Why? Because I think it's absolutely prophetic. Uh, the winning word at the spelling bee, uh, this year's national spelling bee, was uh, from, <clears throat> it was the word Laodicean. And with that in mind, let me give you some examples of Laodicean Christianity here in the United States of America. This next audio is an interview with a pastor and a young lady, the young lady who is supposedly a Christian, um, and uh, listen very carefully and see if uh, she fits the bill for a potential candidate for a Laodicean Christian. Okay. Is this fine? <laughs> She'll talk. Okay. She will? She, yeah, does she, talk. she can talk? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I am here. Katie, Katie, tell me, what is the most important thing to you? We'll talk about what... What is this about. blog about? Things that are important in people's life. My family. Is it? Is that number one for you? <laughs> no. Honestly, my family, yes. But they live in Texas. Second. What comes in second? Any of these people? Fashion. Fashion. Yeah, I love it. I work in fashion. So first family, second fashion. You got your priorities, right? Yeah, it feels really good. I love fashion. Okay. Tell me, do you believe in uh, peace? What do you believe about peace? It would be great, but is it going to happen? Probably not. Yeah. How do you get, do you have peace? I love this. This is cool. In my life, yes. <laughs> I do, but, you know, like worldwide, no, it's probably not going to happen, but, you know. Let's go a little bit deeper because they're getting ready to go. So I got to go right to the. They're okay. cool. Okay. What about God? What do you believe about God? I love God and I love Jesus Christ, my Savior. <laughs> All right. So pause right there. This uh, We've learned a little bit about this woman. She loves her family that's in Texas, she loves fashion. And now we've gotten to the God question, and she loves God, she, uh, Jesus Christ, her Savior. Listen carefully. See if she could potentially be a Laodicean Christian, somebody who's bought into the culture. <laughs> no, I'm just a normal Christian. I'm from Texas. I love God. I love Jesus. I pray every night, you know. You, you do? Okay, so, given. Come, so he's not very important, though, to you, right? He is, yeah. He didn't even come up on your top? I don't discuss religion. That's my personal thing. So when Jesus said to go into all the world and preach the gospel, you disobey? No, I love God, but do I have sex premaritally? Yes, I do. <laughs> so you love your you love your sex life more than you love God? I love God. God and I love Jesus and I pray to him because I love him and he is what gives me life but I don't necessarily believe what the Bible says because it was written by man. Thank you. Good night guys. <laughs> uh, there you have it. Just uh, one potential uh, example of what could be considered to be Laodicean, Laodicean Christianity. <clears throat> neither hot nor cold. Now, the second uh, item here, remember, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the church at Laodicea. That's right, that wonderful, blind, naked, and lukewarm, tepid church that Jesus is going to spit from his mouth. That's right, the church at Laodicea. All right, moving along here, uh, this is audio from a church, well, a video produced by a church called Momentum Church. I believe they're in Cleveland, Ohio. They they advertise them t- themselves as a church that's 100% boring free. And so if you attend Momentum Church in Cleveland, Ohio, you are free from boredom by attending their church. And they've produced a video that's on YouTube called The Birthplace of Superman. 
why, I don't know. If you would like to see it, you, I have it posted at the Museum of Idolatry. That's right. For those of you who don't know, I also happen to be the curator of the Museum of Idolatry. You can visit the Museum of Idolatry at a littleleven.com. That's a littleleven.com. And the name of the exhibit is called This Video Was Produced by a Christian Church. I just want, I'm going to play this for you. Now, some of you are going to say, whoa, was, is that appropriate language to be playing on Christian radio? Well, um, if you don't get mad at me, if you don't like the language in this video, the reason why I say that is because this was produced by Momentum Church. In fact, throughout the entire video, the website address for the church is always 100% present on the screen momentumchurch.com it appears in the very bold letters in the left hand, bottom left hand corner of the screen so this is a uh, video produced by momentum church in cleveland ohio entitled the birthplace of superman and if you don't really quite get what's going on here uh the person who's talking who sounds like uh he's got uh, a hispanic accent that's supposedly superman and it's a superman doll i think they're imi- they're mimicking something they've seen on either uh, comedy central or another youtube video but here we go the birthplace of superman by momentum church <laughs> So, um, uh, Clark, uh, tell me why you're interested in working at the Plain Dealer? Oh, please, please, call me Mr. Kent. Well, I've worked at the Daily Planet in Metropolis for many years, but the economy sucks, man, so they laid me off. Me! Okay, yeah, that, that was, uh, Superman saying that the economy sucks. And, uh, by the way, this was produced by Momentum Church in Cleveland, Ohio. Clark Kent, they didn't even know that I'm Superman. How did they not know? So I'm just telling you up front, I am Superman. Uh, Mr. Kent, uh, we'll get back with you. Call me Clark. Obviously I was lying. I wasn't laid off from the Daily Planets. I had seniority there with the Union. Shoot, I worked there like 77 years. I really came here to find my birth parents. I always hear people saying that Cleveland is the birthplace of Superman, but I remember growing up as a young child on the planet Krypton. The truth is, I don't remember being born, so maybe I was born in Cleveland. Somehow I ended up on Krypton and came back to Earth. It's baffling. If I was born in Cleveland, that might explain why I love corned beef and sauerkraut, but I freaking hate Fox's NFL pregame show with Terry Bradshaw. That guy's an idiot. Hey, guys, I'm looking... Just want to remind you, folks... Uh, if you, since you can't see the video, the entire time that this video is playing and all of this audio that you're hearing, uh, you could see the words MomentumChurch.com. This is produced by MomentumChurch.com. To fight some crime in Cleveland. Any idea where the black market is? Is it anywhere near the west side market? I know you know. Dead giveaways. Does anyone know where I can find this gang of villains known as the Bone Thugs in Harmony? I must put a stop to them. Their biggest crime was that last album they put out. What's going on here? Are you about to do some break dancing? I'm here to stop crime, and if white people start dancing, I will put a stop to it right now. Hey, you guys be careful. I see Dante's Star Wars car coming. 
to find some clue about my birthplace, maybe I need to check out the archives of my exploits as a superhero. Oh, A&A Comics. I could sit here and read this crap all day. Hey, comic book geek, come over. Just want to remind you, this video that you're, that you're listening to the audio was produced by MomentumChurch.com. We're here for a second. <laughs> Shoot straight with me. Do I look fat in this picture? I think my butt looks big, stinking tights. Yeah. Well, I'm not much of a Marvel Comics fan, but I wonder if any of these women with superpowers could be my mother. This woman named Storm, oh, she looks kind of like Holly Berry. Holy crap, Holly Berry is from Cleveland. Does anyone know where Holly Berry just, lives? Just want to remind you, this was produced by MomentumChurch.com. I think she's my mother. Your secret is safe with me. I'm Superman. All right, ladies and gentlemen, time for a good old-fashioned foot race. Oh, wait a minute. False start. Oh, you cheater. That's okay, because I'm faster than a speeding bullet. I knew it would pay off to put that Stairmaster in my basement. I still got it. All right, let's see what's on the radio. Oh, come on, Cleveland. There's nothing on but a bunch of crap. Momentum meets Just want to remind you that this video was produced by Momentum Church. Every Sunday, 10 a.m. at Cinema. Whoa, what's this? Visit MomentumChurch.com. Hmm, that sounds interesting. I think I'll slide over to Cinemark. Then I saw her, very early on a Sunday morning, walking into Cinemark. Her name was Lauren Russ, and she was a short drink of water. Hey, pretty mama. As I was pulling up to Cinemark, I was noticing you noticing me. I got a couple extra tickets to the Cavs-Celtics game. You want to come? Or at the very least, would you like to touch my pectorals? <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I love LeBron James, but dunking from the free throw line, that's easy. I could dunk from the other free throw line if I wanted to, and whenever I dunk, everyone gets a free chalupa. After I'd proposed to Lauren, I realized there was one thing I still hadn't done yet. Look myself up on Wikipedia. Hmm, it says here, Superman is a superhero widely considered to be an American cultural icon. <laughs> That's right. He was created by American Jerry Siegel and Canadian-born Joe Schuster. In 1932, while both were living in Cleveland, Ohio. Jerry and Joe. Hmm, that's interesting. So here's what I've deduced. I'm one of Jerry's kids. I was born to a man named Jerry and some chick named Joe. Probably some alias used by Holly Berry growing up. At the young age, I began fighting crime on the streets of Bedford as a vigilante. Until I was caught by the law, my memory was wiped, and I was deported to the planet Krypton. That place blew up, and I ended up back here. I don't think I'll ever know the full truth, but that's probably pretty close. Until I discover the whole truth, I'll just set up camp here, in the greatest city on Earth, Cleveland, Ohio. And on the weeks that Lauren Russ is emceeing, I'll visit Momentum Christian Church in Valley View. No perfect people allowed, they say. Huh. I bet they'll make one exception. All right, so there you have exhibit number two, if you would, of uh, what may be considered to be Laodicean Christianity. Christianity completely capitulating to the culture. Rather than being countercultural, it's gone the way of the culture. When we come back, we I got some more examples of some Laodicean Christianity. Uh, we'll be... <clears throat> I, I don't know if I want to uh, divulge this one ahead of time, but we're going to learn how to share our faith using a very famous uh, Disney Channel television show. Uh, this is from the Christian Post. We'll talk about the Church of Scotland uh, and this pastor in Dallas uh, who says that gay is okay. And then for today's final exhibit of potential Laodicean Christianity, we'll be visiting again Scott Hodge, uh, Pastor Scott Hodge, 
and uh, <clears throat> listening to a sermon entitled Living Vente, and this one's all about dating. Yeah, because, you know, Christ came to kind of cool, make things really cool for you on the dating scene. So we got lots of stuff yet ahead here on Fighting for the Faith. And keep in mind that today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the church at Laodicea. That's right. All right. Now, without any further ado, we're going to go into our first break. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or if you'd like to be my friend on Facebook, name there is Chris Roseborough. Look me up. Or you can follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. Name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. They don't know they're dead in their sins. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. (laughs) 
All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the church at Laodicea. That's right. Do you want to be blind, naked, and tepid? Then the church of Laodicea is for you. And for this, you get to be spewed right out of Jesus' mouth. That's right. Capitulate to the culture. Don't be countercultural. Don't preach the gospel. Don't exalt Jesus Christ. In fact, just throw him out of your church and leave him standing outside your, his, the, ch- the doors of your church going, Hello, um, can you let me in, please? Yeah, uh, 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 this is Jesus speaking. Um, why am I outside of your church? <clears throat> anyway, all right. <laughs> I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend upon you in order to continue to do this important and vital and unpopular work that we do here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, you can support us a couple of different ways. You can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, from the Christian Post, this is not a news story, but um, another potential example of Laodicean Christianity. The headline reads, How to Share Your Faith Using Hannah Montana. <laughs> Oh, man. (laughs) I've watched Hannah Montana. I I have daughters. Both of them are, uh, well, one of them is going to be a teenager. The other one is about to be 18. My younger one, who's 12, has been known to tune in to Hannah Montana. And one time I had the unfortunate experience of actually watching the show with her. So apparently... Much to my chagrin, I had no idea that you can actually share the Christian faith. That would be the gospel message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. At least that's what I understand our faith to be about. Um, Using Hannah Montana. Um, Crucifying Hannah Montana, though, I think probably borders on uh, even... You know, dreaming about doing such a thing definitely would fall into the category of murdering somebody in your heart. So I don't recommend going that route when it comes to sharing your faith using Hannah Montana. However, I read from this oh-so-relevant uh, op-ed piece uh, by Jane Dratz, who's a Christian Post guest columnist and also a, vis- uh, a regular contributor to a website called DareToShare.org. Uh, We read, tweener phenomenon Hannah Montana, a.k.a. Miley Cyrus, uh, whirlwind tour is packing concert venues across the country. In fact, I think she just came out with a new movie, the Hannah Montana movie. If she hasn't already descended on a city near you, trust me when she does, you're going to hear about it before, during, and after her entourage sweeps in and out of town. Like it or not, the buzz is deafening. Scoring a ticket has become a notable event in and of itself, and if not for the swoon effect exhibited by ultra-devoted Hannah Montana fans, then its potential resale value, Hannah Montana buzz, is so intense and intentional that ticket prices on the resale market start at $300 in most concert cities and have reached a reported $2,565 for a single ticket in Charlotte, North Carolina. I mean, I mean seriously. I mean, if uh, it, yeah, that—that's how you tell whether or not you need to hook the Christian wagon onto something, right? I mean, Hannah Montana's the biggest thing, so we need to just latch onto her, 
in order to share our faith, right? Perhaps you already are already more aware of this phenom than you want to be, but for the benefit of those who are still Hannah Montana oblivious, here's the crash course. Disney's Hannah Montana is a normal teen by day and a rock star by night, but this dual life is a secret from all of her family and her closest friends. Fanatical fans, world travel, sh- uh, shoes, hot clothes, did I mention shoes, fill her world when uh, when she's inhabiting her rock star persona. But each morning, a regular day, life awaits her as a typical teen with the normal teen joys and challenges. So what's not to love? And 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 the song goes... It's the best of both worlds. Who wouldn't want to live her stardom dream and keep their normal life? And maybe that's the appeal. Deep down, we all want to live our dreams. But how do you figure out in the first place what your dream is? What will really satisfy you in life? And if you're a believer, where does God fit into your dreams for the future? Notice that at this point, that paragraph number three here in this How to Share Your Faith Using Hannah Montana uh, we've got the segue into God here, finally. So it, it's all about living your your dreams. <clears throat> Quote, moving along here, the Bible offers some insights for answering these kinds of dis- difficult but incredibly important questions. Check out some of these truths based on Bible verses that deal with the whole subject of what life is all about. Okay, headline number one, because we were created for a relationship with God. We will only find ultimate fulfillment in the midst of a personal relationship with him. (sighs) Long before he laid down Earth's foundation, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved Son. Uh, this is that was apparently a Bible verse uh, too. To be in fact, uh, from the message paraphrase, that was Ephesians chapter one, verses four and uh, through six. That sorry, three verses there. <clears throat> Moving along, also from the message paraphrase, we learn that a satisfying life focuses on loving God and loving others. Jesus said, "Love the Lord your God with all your passion and your prayer and intelligence and energy." And here's the second, love others as well as you love yourself. And there are no other commandments that rank these. See, that's the Christian faith, love God and love others. Which by the way is um the summary of the entire Mosaic law. Um Okay, well, maybe we could pull this out of the fire here. Hang on. Uh, continuing along, uh, next the one. God designed you uniquely. Discover your unique blend of spiritual gifts, natural abilities, passions, and personality, and use them for his glory. Wait a second. This sounds exactly like the stuff I heard Pastor Rick Warren preaching yesterday. Yeah, we reviewed his sermon on how, uh, you know, looking at Jesus and how he handled stress. And uh, Pastor Warren waxed eloquent, eloquent about being purpose-driven, which, by the way, sounds like uh, Jane Dratz is here sharing the purpose-driven religion rather than the Christian faith. Believe me, there is a difference. And again, she's quoting from the message paraphrase here. Uh, quote, God's various gifts are handed out everywhere, but they all originate in God's spirit. God's various ministries are carried out everywhere, but they all originate in God's spirit. God's various expressions 
of power are in action everywhere, but God himself is behind it all. Each person is giving is given something to do that shows who God is. Everyone gets in on it. Everyone benefits. All kinds of things are handed out by the Spirit to all kinds of people. Uh, that's supposedly 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, according to the message paraphrase. Um, Moving along with Jane Dratt's commentary, seek a dream for your future that will fold these truths together and will allow you to live your life in harmony with God's desire for his kingdom and to come to his good news to be spread to the ends of the earth. Um, Jane, um, where's the good news mentioned in this article? Maybe there's more. She talks about it but i don't know she defines it all right so so you're you what you need to do is to uh dream seek a dream for your future you centered um that will allow you to fold these truths together and to live your life in harmony with god's desire for his kingdom to come and his uh, good news to be spread to the ends of the earth living a double life as a rock star like hannah montana may be miley cyrus's dream but god has made you unique uniquely uh, you so you unleash the gifts and abilities he's given you and find a way to use them for his glory right now in your future as well and uh, be his light in the midst of your circle of friends who don't know him by taking the hannah montana phenom and using it to turn the conversation towards god talk try some of these kinds of questions so the, listen carefully this is some important stuff here um those of you it, next time some teeny bopper is in your presence and uh, brings up hannah montana you can turn the tables on them and and use this to share your faith are you ready have you ever wished you lived a secret double life do you think being rich and famous would make you happier why or why not okay next question in case you run into a, a miley cyrus a starstruck teeny bopper. Uh, do you have a dream for your future? What is it? What were the steps along the way in your life that helped you discover your dream? I'm hoping these questions are leading towards repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Somehow I don't think so. Uh, did you? Did God play a role in the formation of your dream? Why or why not? If you haven't yet discovered what your dream for your future is, do you have a plan for figuring it out? Does God play any role in your plan? Listen and share what role God plays plays in your life and in your dreams for the future Mm -hmm. and one of uh, hannah slash miley's hit songs is called nobody's perfect what do you do when you mess up it's easy uh, or is it easy or hard for you to ask for forgiveness or is it easier hard for you to forgive yourself share how god's standard for heaven is perfection and how he sent his son jesus to pay the price for our mess ups and to restore our relationship with god for help explaining this check out the gospel journey okay so we got a little gospel nugget in there okay discussing what makes life satisfying is a perfect opening for talking about your relationship with god (sighs) what makes your life satisfying really you know what's funny is is that jesus didn't come to have you know beg for you to ask him into your heart and or beg to help have him help you make your life more satisfying or help you with accomplishing the dreams that you have for your life um god uh, jesus christ died on the cross and sent the uh, christians out into the world to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in jesus name basically call all men to repentance by the way uh that would be things on god's terms not our terms and the problem with this hannah montana thing is is that yeah it seems like the culture just like the laodicean church it has um has impacted uh 
Jane Dratz and her thinking, and I do think this is another example of what we would consider to be Laodicean Christianity. Moving along, not limiting our our examples of Laodicean Christianity to just the United States, we read from, uh, let's see, this is from onenewsnow.com, uh, Church of Scotland abandons Bible and allows gay pastor. London. The Church of Scotland has approved the appointment of an openly homosexual minister, the latest case of tensions over sexuality to prompt division in the Anglican communion. Well, I mean, I mean, if that girl from Texas can say she loves Jesus and, and has no problem saying that the Bible is just a man-made book, and, but she loves and prays to Jesus and she's having premarital sex, why, what's the point of having a problem with a pastor who's gay? <clears throat> The church's ruling uh, body voted Saturday at 326 to 267 to support the appointment of the Reverend Scott Rennie, 37, who was previously married to a woman and is now a, in a relationship with a man. Rennie was first appointed as a minister 10 years ago, uh, but has faced opposition from some critics since he moved to a church in Aberdeen, Scotland last year. Uh, the case threatens to divide Scottish religious leaders and follows uh, tension within the worldwide 77 million member Anglican Communion. About 900 elders and ministers took part in the debate on Rennie's case, but many choose, chose to abstain from casting a vote. Anglicans have conducted lengthy debate over sexuality issues since the Episcopalian Church and the Anglican body in the U.S. consecrated the first openly gay bishop. Uh, that would be uh, Gene Robinson of New Hampshire in 2003. Rennie said he believed religious conservatives were behind attempts to oust him from his post. The same talk was about when women were ordained, and I think that argument suits those who don't want any change, he told Britain's Sky News Television on Saturday. Following the vote, um, uh, the, uh, the vote to back Rennie, Scotland's Equality and Human Rights Commission said that the Church of Scotland had proven itself to be a modern church for a modern Scotland. <laughs> Isn't that great? Modern church for a modern Scotland, because that's what we need. We need a modern church for a modern Scotland. You know, because here in America, we have a modern church for a modern America. Isn't that just wonderful? Protesters had lobbied the Kirk, uh, the Church of England's, uh, Scotland's uh, ruling executive over Rennie's case, saying his appointment was not consistent with the teachings of the Bible. Oh, come on! Who needs a Bible? <clears throat> Quote, we're absolutely opposed that on the basis of what God has to say about homosexuality in the Bible, one oppo uh, opponent, Pastor Jack Bell of the Zion Baptist Church in Glasgow, Scotland, said. So is this another example of Laodicean Christianity? Absolutely. It is an example of Laodicean Christianity. Why? Because the culture right now is in the driver's seat in the church. And the culture thinks that the church is making progress. That's right, by becoming more like them. Now, what is our view on homosexuality, by the way? I, I will say this. I've said it once. I'll say it a hundred more times if I need to. And those of you who are paying attention on the Internet and know about the uh, the the legislation that's in the Congress regarding regarding cyberbullying. You know, this is the kind of talk that could get me thrown in prison a few years from now, or maybe even this year. We'll see if I'm that lucky. But here we go. Ready? I love homosexuals. Christ died for homosexuals. Homosexuality, though, just like adultery, just like lying, just like 
Not honoring your father and mother, just like idolatry, is a sin. To say anything other than that would be to not love a homosexual and to not tell him the truth. However, the great news is Christ died even for the sin of homosexuality, and he is offering homosexuals a full and complete pardon, forgiveness of all of their sins, and their open rebellion against him and his word and his law because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. You want to fight homosexuality? Preach the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There is no other name given under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. We need to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to everybody. Heterosexuals, homosexuals, everybody on the planet needs to hear this message. And it's the only message that God has promised to work salvation in people uh, through its preaching. God's kingdom is advanced through the foolishness of preaching the gospel. So what are we? what's our position here? Real simple. You want to fight this fight? Uh, the, the, I'm going to tell you right now, this, this battle in the Church of Scotland was lost a long time ago. I mean, this was uh, this vote that was taken on Saturday. Th- this vote was lost years ago. It was lost when the Church of England, the uh, Church of Scotland, and the Anglicans stopped preaching the gospel. When when that happens, it's just a matter of time before votes like this occur. You preach the gospel though, and you get a church full of repentant sinners who are there to receive the word of God Sunday after Sunday and to receive the sacraments from God Sunday after Sunday. These kind of shenanigans don't happen. Uh, Repentant sinners don't put somebody who's an unrepentant sinner in a pulpit. All right. Another potential example of Laodicean Christianity. This comes from the DallasNews.com website, uh, home of the Dallas Morning News uh, newspaper. Uh, We read, East Dallas Methodist pastor counters First Baptist sermon with the Why Gay is Okay message. Another example I would think of Laodicean Christianity, this time back here in America. The pastor of Little Grace United Methodist Church took a swipe at big First Baptist Church of Dallas on Sunday with a sermon entitled, why gay is okay. The message was delivered as a counterpunch to Why Gay is Not Okay, a November sermon by First Baptist Pastor Dr. Robert Jeffress. Quote, I knew I had to preach about this. The Reverend Diana Holbert said Sunday, do you detect two examples of Laodicean Christianity there? I, I'm counting two. Are you counting two with me? Let me read that again. Uh, I knew I had to preach about this. The Reverend Diana Holbert said Sunday. Uh, she told her di- uh, diverse East Dallas congregation that homosexual- homosexuality is not a big issue in the Bible and that Christians should be more focused on subjects such as health care, greed in the corporate world, and the welfare of children. Hmm, interesting. You know, listen, listen to this argument. This is just profound argumentation here. 
uh, homosexuality is not a big issue in the Bible. Homosexuality is not a big issue in the Bible. And that Christians should instead be focused on such subjects as health care. Um, uh, uh, Pastrix Diana, i uh, got a question for you. Just, you know, it's the first thing that comes bubbling up to my mind. And I, because I'm sitting in front of a radio mic, I just happen to, you know, ha- be in a position to voice this question that just bubbled right up is, where is health care um, a big issue in the Bible? There's, um, corporate greed. Um, where is that a big issue listed in the Bible? Yeah, um, I'm I'm not familiar with the passages on healthcare and corporate and greed in the corporate world. Could you maybe you can send me an email, uh, Pastrix Diana, and you can let me know where I could find. I mean, because I, I mean, funny enough though, homosexuality is mentioned in the scriptures and. Uh, I think in the book of Leviticus, we have a passage that says when a man lies with another man as he, as a, as he lies with a woman, that is a, um, know, what's the word, abomination. Uh, and also you have uh, the Apostle Paul saying that homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, that seems pretty much like a big issue to me. Hmm. Yet I am, you know what, I have a computerized Bible, you know. It's only fair that we use technology here to look to see if um, the Bible mentions, hang on a second here, corporate greed. No, not there. Let me widen the search out here. That wasn't fair because I was only looking in the New Testament. Here we go. All right, the entire Bible, corporate greed. No, it's not there. Hang on a second. How about um, corporate no, it's not there either. Um, hmm. Hang on a second here. Health care. Health care. No, not there. Now I'm confused. I mean, she says that homosexuality is not a big issue in the Bible, yet the Bible doesn't mention anything about health care or corporate greed. Uh, let me continue with the story. About a third of the church's membership is gay or lesbian, as she said. Uh, during her sermon, Holbert said, God doesn't discard or discriminate. The Bible has often been used to attack gay and lesbian persons. If calling a sin a sin is the equivalent of attacking a gay or lesbian person, then, man, I've been attacked by uh, the church, too, because I've been told that my sinful behavior is, well, sinful. All right, so she says, let's put a stop to that. De- Jeffress issued a rebuttal to Holbert's sermon even before her service began. It, uh, he said, quote, I wonder if her follow-up message will be why adultery is okay or why incest is okay. He wrote last week in an email to the Dallas Morning News. Uh, the Bible says sex is reserved for a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. Makes perfect sense to me. The plumbing seems to fit there, too. He continued, once you reject God's word as our absolute authority in all matters, then any perversion is possible. E, I agree. Holbert, whose husband is a professor at Southern Methodist University Perkins School of Theology, uh, chose her words slowly in responding after after her sermon. She said uh, she said she had never met Jeffress. I wanted to be careful, she said in an interview. I don't want to call him anti-scholastic. I don't want to get in a fight with him. <laughs> well, that's funny. Even though you don't want to call him anti-scholastic, didn't you just do that by inferring that? I mean, I mean, what what redneck, backwoods, uneducated pastor would ever have the audacity to say that 
homosexuality is a sin. We all know, those of us who have an education all know better. I bet you anything, Dr. Yeah, let's see. Let's, uh, was it Dr. Jeffress? Yeah, Dr. Robert Jeffress obviously got his degree from uh, the Redneck School of Theology somewhere in the backwaters of Louisiana. Well, I think that we have two examples in one from this um, United Methodist Church of Laodicean Christianity. I think that makes the point. Well, remember, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the church in Laodicea. Well, we're going to take our second break, and when we come back, we're going to dive into our sermon review. Uh, Scott Hodge uh, from the Orchard Fellowship in Aurora, uh, Illinois, uh, has got a fantastic, culturally relevant dating uh, sermon that we've got to review as part of his Living Vente uh, sermon series. And so you definitely do not want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's right. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or if you'd like to be my friend on Facebook, I'm generally a friendly guy. You can uh, look me up there. My name's Chris Rosebro. Or if you'd like to receive our subversive microblogging tweets via Twitter, the name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. Welcome to our number two, Numero Dos, Fighting for the Faith, and this fine Friday afternoon. For your listening pleasure, we're going to dive right into our sermon review. Continuing, just want to remind you. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the Laodicean Church. Here we go. 
That's right. There's our sermon review theme. The good, the bad, and the mucho ugly. Now, I know we've been on quite a streak here with ugly sermons. However, my, uh, my heart doesn't seem to feel guilt as much as it used to now that I've been invoking and utilizing the emergency gospel sermon. <laughs> That's right. Today's uh, sermon is brought to you by the Orchard Church in Aurora, Col- uh, Illinois. Sorry, Aurora, Illinois. Uh, the Reverend Scott Hodge there in his ever-so-clever way of mixing American culture and Christianity. A perfect blend of hot and cold to create tepid, spew-you-out-of-Jesus-mouth spew type of water. Today's sermon is all about dating, part of the Living Vente sermon series. That's right. Uh, that ser- sermon series has continued to go on for quite a few weeks. Can we kill that music now? Uh, yeah, thanks. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Just had to uh, get rid of that music. So, without any further ado, we've got a fine example of a Laodicean sermon here on dating. Dating, of all things. Because, you know, because Christ came to solve that pesky dating problem. I can't wait to... <laughs> Here, what? Here we go. Hey guys, it's me, Scott. I am standing on Congress Avenue, literally in the middle of the street in Austin, Texas, home to 1.3 million people, of which 35% are single. I mean, it is like it is like the dating capital in the U.S. And so we thought we'd hit the streets and uh, find out more about the dating scene in the city. Come on. Oh man, just shoot me, shoot, <laughs> come Lord Jesus, please, All right, we're off on the wrong foot, we're, we're in Austin, Texas, home of the dating capital of the world, man, this is going to be a great sermon, we're, yeah. oh, let's check it out. So, what do you guys look for in someone that you're dating? Uh, humor. Somebody I can be best friends with. Uh, personality. More than looks. Because you can have looks and a beauty, but if there's no personality, there's no connection. Yeah. That he's going to look good, and that he's nice. That they are not stupid. Honesty. A good heart. Personality. It's got to be beautiful, okay. great personality, not too needy. All right. So how often do you think? Not too often. There's not very many women like that. <laughs> Somebody who has a beautiful spirit who will be with you thick and thin, who doesn't play games with you. Somebody who um, basically loves life to the fullest, who never gets down. It's kind of important that you have the same interests and similarities. Yeah. You know, like uh, whether it's religious or politics or even movies or music, you know, yeah. I think that there's a bond. You know, you need to be, you need to have a partnership with your mate. Personality. Someone that's different and sticks out of the crowd. Tattoos, dark hair, like uh, anything different than like the blonde Barbie doll. He has to have a good job. <laughs> 200 grand. That's how much you want to make? Or how much? No, how much? No, not me. Who she looking for? Manners. Manners. Okay. Like, gentlemen, open the door. Love a smart girl, love a girl that can be witty and come back. 
you know, whatever you have, she'll throw it back at you and yeah. makes you think on your feet. Each fan of physique, you know, working out, four-pack for the girl, or flat stomach, you know. Stability, more yeah. than anything. Yeah, that he's not running around, partying a lot. Yeah. He's at home most of the time, at least five days a week. Uh, uh, stability, you know. Stability. <laughs> stability. Just so she's the same all the time. I'm, just, I'm, I'm not stable, so I'm looking for stability to help me out. Appearance. <laughs> cleanliness. Stability and cleanliness. And a non-smoker. And a non-smoker. What do you think the most about dating? We didn't know each other. I guess I would hate the whole, just the, the butterflies beforehand. You ain't got the money, the car, the this, the that. You're not oh. brand kid or whatever. You ain't worth nothing. And you feel like you're on an interview, and everyone hates yeah. interviews. And you just know you're not going to get the job. You just know you don't even want the job. Like, that's how it is with dating. <laughs> I want to remind you all that today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the church at Laodicea. That's, that's quite a place, Austin, Texas. Well, here we are, week number, anyone know, four, of uh, series Living Venti. And, of course, uh, this is a series that's all about living the kind of life and, and being the kind of, of people that God created us to be, which, which are people who don't just live, but people who, who truly live with purpose and, and passion. I mean, that is living venti. Uh, that is uh, believing heresy. This is not what Christianity is. And so this weekend, we're going to talk about what that looks like for those of you who are single. Now, I just have to say that if this was going to be a, a typical... Everyone say typical. Now, if this was going to be a typical sermon on the subject of, of single life, uh, what would happen is it would probably start off with me or some other minister or preacher or priest or whatever coming up to the stage and saying something along these lines. Today, I want to talk to all of you singles about how you can successfully find the perfect man or woman that God wants you to marry. Really? Uh, where is that in the Bible? I, I've been through many sermons. I've sat in many sermons. Lutheran, Nazarene, evangelical, generic, non-denom. I've never heard a pastor stand up and say he's going to tell me how to find my perfect mate. Because that's just... In fact, even when I was a Nazarene, you know what they did? They actually preached from the Bible. And I can't recall a single passage of scripture that lays well you could talk about the proverbs with 31 women there but even then and those of you who are single would sit there and you would think to yourself some of maybe one of two things maybe some of you would think to yourself great thank god because i can't stand the pressure and the stress of being single but then there are probably some of you who would hear that, and, and maybe you've heard sermons for singles many times, and you would think to yourself, yeah, okay, whatever, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and uh, whatever. 
so I just want you to know that tonight is not going to be one of those nights. We're not going to start out that way because, uh, first of all, not only is that typical, and, well, if you haven't figured this out already, we're not typical here at the orchard, okay? Yeah, four of you are glad about that. Um, but we're, we're going to start out, we're not going to start out that way, uh, not just because it's, it's typical, but we're not going to start out that way because that is, I think, the wrong place to start, There's a man, if you go back years ago, most of you probably heard of this man, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, slow down there, Scott. Uh, Where is the right place to start? Start with Martin Luther? Now, I'm a Lutheran, and I've read a lot of Luther. Um, And, you know, I like Luther. But even I would question whether or not he's the right place to start with a sermon. I thought we begin with the Word of God. Maybe I'm just being idealistic. He was a great reformer of the church. He, he was used by God in some amazing ways. In fact, uh, uh, he was a man who believed that God's word should not just be in the hands of priests, but the, the Bible should be in the hands of, of all of us, you and me. I mean, the fact that you and I have a Bible today uh, goes back to, to his work and to his passion and his belief in that. Which kind of leads to the Lex logical question, since we've reviewed several of your sermons here at Fighting for the Faith. How come you don't preach the word if it... If it was so important that the Bible get into the hands of people so that they can know what the truth is, how come you don't preach it? Just a logical question. You know, want to, I throw that out there. Well, unfortunately, Martin Luther also had a few ideas that, that I think influenced the church in a few, I guess you could say, adverse ways. Not many, but a few, probably like all of us, right? For example, in, in one of his writings one time to, a, uh, to an older colleague of his, in fact, it was a monk, actually, who was contemplating marriage. And Martin Luther, in one of his, his letters to him, wrote these words. And I, I want you to, to uh, look at this. It's on the screens. Martin Luther wrote, Whoever will live alone undertakes an impossible task and takes it upon himself to run counter to, God, uh, to God's word and the nature that God has given and preserves in him. Such persons revel in whoredom and all sorts of uncleanness of the flesh until they are drowned in their own vices and driven to despair. In other words, stop thinking about getting married and just do it. Get married, okay, because your body needs it, God wills it for you, and so just do it. Well, singles, let me just ask you, how does that make you feel? Mm. Pressured? Stressed out? You know, you could put a little bit of historical context on it. Martin Luther, uh, are you familiar with the fact that he was in a monastery? Are you familiar with the fact that he made a pilgrimage to Rome and actually saw the brothels that used to exist in Rome for the clergy? Uh, You know, man. What's really funny, though, is is that uh, they did kind of do some... How did I? How do you put this? Arranged marriages, and they worked out just fine. Incomplete. Look, look. The truth is, this is how a lot of singles I know feel just about every single day of their lives. Full of pressure, full of of, of anxiety, feeling like they're not maybe not good enough or spiritual enough, or like they somehow are like incomplete because they are in fact single. 
I mean, think about some of the conversations. Because you know what? We as married folks, we, we don't help that out, do we, very much? I mean, think about some of the conversations we have. You know, it's a, hey, Joe, how's your family doing? Well, they're doing great. My kids, well, man, they're grown now. You know, uh, yeah, Jimmy's married to this beautiful woman. And, and uh, Joan, she's got these cute little kids. Oh, yeah, well, how's Rachel? Ooh, ah, she's, she hasn't found anybody yet. Oh, that, I'm sorry, poor thing. But, but it's okay, because she will. One day she will. We're working on her. And then we wonder why single people live under this constant strain of pressure. And look, we, we see it all over. We see it in our culture. We, I mean, we see it in television. We see it in movies. And, and sadly, we even see it in the church. You know, that, that woman that we played the interview with earlier, she didn't seem to be under a lot of pressure to get married. She was having premarital sex, and she loves Jesus. Simple solution, right? Remember, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the church at Laodicea. Did you know that? In fact, there's this uh, sociologist by the name of Janet Fishburne who says this, and she talks about how the, the American church is suffering from what's, what she calls the idolatry of the family. Okay, and her premise is that the American church has taken this whole idea of family, this wonderful idea, this concept of family, and, and, and has actually taken it and placed it above the church. And in a way, it's like she's taken, she says what's happened is we've taken the family and we've said, okay, if you're going to be a successful Christian, if you're going to be a great Christian, then it'll be after you become married and have children and establish a family. Then... You know, and see, we may not say it that way, and churches may not preach it that way, but I think it comes across in a lot of things we do. Someone made a great point the other day. They said, you know, we'll celebrate a, a married couple who's been married for 25 years faithfully, but when's the last time we asked a single person to stand up and celebrate the fact that they've uh, uh, lived pure for 25 years? We are now nine minutes into the sermon. <clears throat> no scripture references whatsoever. Lots of opinions and weird things, but... I, I, I mean, being a Lutheran, I'm really excited about the Luther quote, but even then, it doesn't really meet the mustard, because the job of a pastor, the last time I checked the scriptures, is to preach the word. No appearance of the word of God yet. Well, unfortunately, not only does this place a huge amount of pressure on those who are single, but, but it is just, it's just flat out untrue. That's right, it's untrue. And so I think that the best place to start uh, tonight is not by answering the question, you know, how do we help single people find the perfect person to marry? But rather, I think the best thing to do is take a step back and to, to just explore what the scriptures, not what man says, but what God says. To really? <laughs> hey, wait, this could be some improvement. Let's, we're going to explore what God says. This, hello, is this Scott Hodge? Just checking. To us about this whole subject of single life. So I want to do that tonight. If you have your Bibles, we're going to journey quite a bit here up front, uh, and then I'm just going to throw down some preaching in a few minutes, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you were all in trouble because I spit when I get excited. Okay, 10 minutes in, and we're finally getting the Word of God. Interesting. Anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter... It's, it's like you're... At that, well, who's that comedian where you got to cover up with the... Yeah, Gallagher. You know, I saw Gallagher once when I was a kid. No kid should ever see Gallagher. But anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing. i got a lot to say, so I'm going to talk fast, okay? The Apostle Paul is talking to a group of people in a place known as Corinth. 
Now, Corinth was made up of both single people and married people. And what you find in 1 Corinthians 7... (laughs) (laughs) No. Who ever heard of a church that was made up of both single people and, and married people? Couldn't that, couldn't that description be used of, like, every church, everywhere? Seven is for the first several verses. He's actually talking uh, and dealing with married couples, and he's actually saying, look, married couples, you all need to be generous sexually one to another. I know some of you are like, what? She's a sex. You're sleeping right then. But anyway, but he says you should be sexually generous with one another as married couples. But then in verse 7, he says this. Look at the screens if you don't have your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 7, 7. Paul says, Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me. A simpler life in many ways. And he goes on to say, But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. Did you catch that? He says, God gives the gift of the single life to some and the gift of married life to others. So, they're both a gift. Being single is a gift. Being married is a gift. Now, let's just keep reading. If you look down at verse 8, Paul goes on. He says, now I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves... They should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Okay, so so in other words, Paul is making it very clear here that singleness is not something that should try to be avoided in our lives. Okay, in fact, or or that, you know, singleness is something bad or it's negative. And, And in a way, he's also really saying here that marriage is not necessarily the ultimate It's not necessarily the ultimate. And see, part of the reason I think that Paul goes so far out of his way and and to speak with such clarity about these issues is for the same reason that these issues need to be addressed today. Uh, Because just like today, back in those days, it was the same idea that, you know, the the Israelite view of the world at that time was that uh, basically, if you were married, you're better off. And if you were married and had kids, then you're even better off. But if you were married and you had a son, ooh, you were like, you were truly in the line of Abraham. Which also meant that if you got married and had girls, you were what? Second tier? Or if you didn't get married at all, what does that make you? And see, so, so essentially what, what Paul is saying here is, look, look, listen, it, it really doesn't matter what you are, whether, whether you're single, you're married, divorced, widowed, or whatever, you are all children of God, and you are complete in him. All right, good point, good point. All right, we're getting some Bible teaching here. <clears throat> good, he's actually opened up the scriptures, and he's teaching us what the passage says conclusions are pretty decent all right so far so good all right why do i feel like this is going to take a bad turn though Hmm. you're complete single or married they're both important and if you you keep reading verse 17 i'm gonna read from the msg message paraphrase Uh oh verse 17 he says and don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else where you are right now is god's place for you 
live and obey and love and believe right there. Listen to this. He says, God, not your marital status, defines your life. And he says, don't think I'm being harder on you than the others. I give the same counsel in all the churches. And so, so Paul says, or he says, look, wherever you are right now, okay, whether you're single, whether you're married, wherever you are, this is God's place for you right now. So live in that place. Obey in that place. Love in that place. Right where you are. In other words, listen, God, not your marital status, is what should define your life. God has you right where he wants you to be at this very moment. All right, good. We're, we're, all right, so far, so good. I, you see, when you're on topic and you're in the scriptures, things generally go well for you here at the Sermon Reviews at Fighting for the Faith. Haven't heard the gospel yet, but we'll, let's see what happens here. He's, well... I think, you know, if you keep reading through 1 Corinthians, this is a really interesting chapter. But if you keep reading, Paul goes on to say quite a bit about singles and marrieds. And, and, and he basically says, look, I understand the pressure. I understand how there's something within so many of us that feels drawn to this idea of marriage. I understand uh, how, how there's so many of you that want to be married. But listen, don't pursue marriage out of this idea that you are incomplete or that you're not spiritual enough just because you're single. Don't let that be a motivating factor. No, no, listen. Be who God has made you to be. And that's live in venti. I mean, being the person God's created you to be. be Something doesn't smell right on that one. Have to track it down. Being who God has made you to be at this very moment in your life. And if you meet someone... Paul says, if you meet someone and you fall in love and you find yourself burning with passion, then marry them. It's okay. And it's funny because in verse 28, it's like, he's, it's like just listen, I just I'll say this one last thing. I'm trying to spare you, he says, the extra problems that come with marriage. <laughs> in other words, listen. I mean, he must have lived next door to a married couple or something. Like he says, listen, don't think that marriage is necessarily the answer. Because look, just like you have issues and challenges as a single person, you will also have issues and challenges and perhaps even greater challenges as a married person. And all the married people said, amen. Some of you are so chicken to say that. You're sitting next to your wife. You're going, wuss, come on. So anyway, and so then he goes on to say that singles, and he goes on to say that singles actually, listen, this is huge, singles actually have an advantage over married people. That's right. In fact, he says because they can devote more of themselves to God's work here on earth. Because, of course, married people are are uh, married people are divided, aren't they? And that's what Paul says. He says married people are divided. It's like on one hand, they're trying to do God's work here on this earth, but they also have to be consumed with each other's needs. And then they have kids, and they have to provide for their family, and they have to raise their kids. And then he sums it all up by saying this. Follow me here. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 35. He says, I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. But if a man thinks that he's treating his fiance improperly and will inevitably give in to his passion, let him marry her as he wishes. It is not a sin. Verse 37. But if he has decided firmly not to marry and there is no urgency and he can control his passion, 
he does well not to marry. All right, now I'm going to point something out. He's gone a straight seven, eight minutes here of doing Bible teaching, which is a little bit rare for him. I wonder if he's been listening to my sermon reviews. Okay, and so far, the Bible teaching part is well done. Scott Hodge can actually preach from the Bible. But he kind of warned us ahead of time that he was going to journey for a little while and then throw down some preaching. But see, the thing is, this is where the preaching's at. Oh, man. I, Scott, you should stop. As soon as you, if, you, if you've run out of things to talk about these passages, you should just end the sermon. Because you're doing well here at, during this segment here right in the middle. You're doing well. So the person who marries his fiance does well, and the person who doesn't marry does even better. Did you catch that? It's probably a little biased, right, because he's single, right? But he says, look, if a man can't keep his hands off his fiance, then hurry up and marry her, okay? It'd be better that you marry than that you burn up in passion. But if you've decided not to marry and you can control your passions, then that's okay, too. Either way is good. If you get married, if you get married, you do well. If you don't get married, you do even better, he says. And so singles, listen, I think that this right here is the starting point. Understanding, okay, that God has you right where he wants you right now at this moment. God has you where he wants you and you are complete in him whether you are single or married. And there is meaning and purpose in your life wherever you are at right now. The important thing... Is that, you, is that you embrace where you're at right now and be careful not to become so focused on where you wish you could be tomorrow or the next day or whenever that you miss out on what God wants to do in your life at this very moment. Okay, yeah. Do you smell that? It just is off. It's not far off, but it's enough off to make you go, well, something's not right. What is it? Embrace where you are. That is a weird statement. Weird statement, foreign biblically. And sometimes when you're doing a sermon review, it's not the stuff that's so blatantly off that you have to worry about. You have to worry about the stuff that's off by a few degrees. Um, I would not focus in on embracing where you are as much as I would say, what's Paul's main point? Abiding in Christ. Paul, Paul correctly and consistently points out that in Christ there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, married or widow or single or whatever. We're all one in Christ. And the important, the, the important two words are, are in Christ. This is where this is starting to head off in the wrong direction. And that is, is that it's now taking what he's, what he, he's correctly read from 1 Corinthians 7 and we're starting to take the focus off of Christ and moving ever so slowly towards turning this back in on ourselves. I, I'm not interested in embracing where I am. I don't even know what that means. I'm, I'm married. I embrace marriedness. How do you unembrace it? I mean, seriously. Um, you know, to unembrace my married status would be to put my marriage in turmoil and, and jeopardize the marriage. That's not a godly thing to do. My marriage thrives when my wife and I abide in the mercy and grace of Christ. 
Same with a single life. So the focus here, again, it's in Christ that we get our identity, not from whether we're married or single, Jew or Greek, slave or free. Hmm. You know, we get so focused, don't we? We get so, man, I just wish this. I wish we could be here. I mean, but God says, no, no, don't lose focus of where you're at right now. Stay focused. And I'll tell you guys, listen, that is living venti. Okay, again, no, God wants our focus to be on Christ. That, you know, that, yeah, mm-hmm. it's just off. It's... Uh. And so Paul says, he says, look, marriage is a human choice. It's not this divine mandate from God that you have to get married, and and there's great reasons for both. Yeah, on the other hand, don't you think it's true that there's also wrong reasons for both? And I mean, think about that. It really comes down to what's the reason? I mean, what's the reason? Because look, if if the reason that you are... Paul says if you're burning with passion, it's better to to be married than to burn. (laughs) What's the reason why you're getting married? Well, ah, I can't make it. I'm going to burn with passion. <clears throat> That's really romantic, isn't it? Pure motives as far as... <sighs> Man. Wanting to get married. This is where the preaching starts, okay? If there's a reason... Okay, that's... Uh, this is what I was afraid of. No, Scott, you were preaching when you were preaching the word. You went... It's 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 just about ten minutes there, ten minutes where you were actually reading from the text and telling us what the text means. That's where you were preaching. Notice that in his mind that what reading the scriptures and telling you what it means wasn't preaching. What does that tell you about Scott Hodge? He's working with b- bad, bogus categories. <sighs> If, if, okay, if, if your reason for wanting to get married is because you feel incomplete in your life now as a single person, listen, that will be a huge mistake for you. Because for one, okay, think about what you're assuming. You're assuming that that marriage is going to fix that. Right? I mean, I mean yeah, but I'm just so lonely. I need to get married. Listen, marriage is not the solution to your loneliness. Sure does help, though. At least you have somebody to play Yahtzee with on the weekends. Hi-yi-yi. Oh, man. I don't even think from a psychology point of view this is even good advice now. Because I know a bunch of single people who are lonely, but I know a lot of married people who are lonely as well. Yeah, but Scott, I just know that I'll feel complete. I just I'll feel whole. Once I get married, no, no, listen, listen, God wants you to feel complete, and he wants you to feel whole right now as a single person. No, as a Christian. See, that's the thing. We are whole and complete in Christ. (sighs) And besides, do you realize the pressure that that puts on the person that that you're going to marry? Think about that pressure. That's horrible. I mean, I finally, finally, I'm going to marry the person so that I'll finally be happy, so that I'll finally feel whole. They're going to make me feel whole and complete, and, and so I will not be lonely anymore. No, no, listen, no person can do or be those things to you. No one. No one. 
And so the bottom line is, if you're not content as a single person, this hurts, I know, but if you're not content as a single person, you're not going to be content as a married person. I mean, right now is the time to learn contentment. And yet, on the other hand... All right, Scott, where do we get contentment from? Just, I focus on being content. I'm content. I'm content. And you become content. Again, contentment is one of those things that really flows from a faith that abides in Christ and understands that our identity is in Christ. That's what's missing here. (sighs) Christ. If you don't want to marry, I think you also have to ask yourself some questions. Why not? Why don't you want to get married? And it's okay not to get married as long as it's for the right reasons. I mean, is it that you want to be single? So, in other words, you could be sinning if you don't want to get married. Because if your reasons for staying single are wrong, then you have to get married. Otherwise, you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah, this is confusing. Because you've seen too many relationships around you fail, and so you're just afraid? I mean, is it a matter of fear or is it a choice that you've made? Because like Paul says, you want to devote your life more fully to God's kingdom work here on earth. See, it really comes down to motive, don't you think? I mean, it really comes down to what's your motive. I mean, what's your, what's your motive for, for wanting to be single or what's your motive for wanting to be married? That, that to me just seems like the starting point right there. But then, once that's settled, I think there are probably a few other things that, that are worth considering. Um, and so let me just address three things, all right? If you have your service guide, you should write these down. Um, these are, the, there's so many things I want to say, but I, I think that we'll be done somewhere around eight, okay? But, but I want you to write down three things. These are three common myths that, that, I, that I think singles tend to buy into and then unfortunately can lead to a lot of trouble in their relationships. Okay, these are three myths. Now, let's say that you've made the decision that you want to be married, okay? And, and that's where you're at. You, you know you don't want to be single. You want to be married. These are, these are three things you've got to really watch out for, okay? Um, the first myth is what I would call, I, I guess I would call it, there's only one myth. It's the, there's only one myth. There's only one. There's only one. Okay? God has created one person in the entire universe who is perfectly suited to be your soulmate. One in the entire freaking universe. <laughs> one, one out of 6.7 billion people on planet Earth. Just one. So good luck finding them. <laughs> be thou encouraged. Good night. Listen, listen, that is a bunch of bull, okay? First of all, that idea, and if you really study the, 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 the bull, I was going to say the bull, if you really study the idea, which is bull, but if you really study that, what you'll find is that that idea, this myth is more rooted in pagan mythology and, and, and Hollywood movies than in anything we read in the Bible. <clears throat> pagan mythology? Um, where in the Bible, is this teaching contradicted by the scriptures? There's the, the, the only one myth. Scott, you were doing so well. You were actually teaching God's word and now you're myth busting uh, and your job as a pastor is to preach the word. Maybe you should leave the myth-busting to the radio guys, but I wouldn't really spend that. 
but a lot of people buy into this. Which explains, I think, why so many singles are walking around so stressed out all the time. Why so many singles live like with this insurmountable pressure in their lives when it comes to finding that person they want to marry. And I'll tell you what, I honestly believe that... Oh, here we go. I honestly believe that this kind of thinking is part of the reason why some people never find a mate. I just do, because they're looking for that perfect soulmate that... I just think, I just think, I just think, what's he doing at this point? He's proclaiming his own opinions as the truth. An opinion is a thought that you have individually with its feet firmly planted in midair. It's not grounded in any truth. That one in the entire universe. And so, and so what happens is the standard is so high that they can't find anyone who's good enough. Not only that, but they think, I mean, but then, but then think about how dangerous this kind of thinking is to our relationships. So let's say you get married, okay? And, and what happens, I think, when you think of it this way, all of a sudden when things don't work out in that relationship, it, it's, it, it's not because, well, it's not because I did anything wrong. It's not because I failed. No, 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 no. It's just that they, they must not have been the one. No, they just weren't the one. I mean, think about this. We ask people, don't we? We ask people, do you think he's the one? He's the one. I, I think he might be the one. Huh? Is she, is she the one, dude? Is she the one? Or we say, we say, well, man, look at that marriage. That was a match made in heaven. Implying that God handpicked a particular man and woman to be joined together. And sure, it sounds great. Who wouldn't want that? It sounds wonderful, right? This idea that out of billions of people in the world, my sweetheart and I, we were drawn together in a way that was totally outside of our control. I mean, it's as as if we assume that God created one human being in the universe just to make me happy. Well, that's pretty self-serving, huh? That seems a little narcissistic to me, right? I mean, especially considering the fact that marriage is supposed to be entered into for each other, not for ourselves, right? Okay, so rather than looking for the one and only in the entire universe that God has for you, set yourself free, guys, from that pressure. Set yourself free. And look, this is such good news. Some of you right now, you're sitting going, oh, thank you, God. That's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because see, now, because if there was just one individual, it's going to take you a long time probably to find them or them to find you. But the fact right now that that, that we've just expanded your your capabilities here, right? We we just opened up a huge new world for you that that maybe it's not just about one. No, see, now does that mean you should lower your standards? Maybe so. Now, people say, don't you lower your standards, girl. No, no, maybe that's part of the reason you're still single. You need to lower those standards a little bit because your standards are unrealistic. (laughs) Scott, 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 Scott. Dude, you were preaching God's word. It was there, man. You had it. You were doing it. You were vindicating yourself. You were growing. You were, as a preacher, you were preaching God's word. You, I mean, you went like 10 whole minutes. We heard it. It's documented here at Fighting for the Faith. You even had me saying some positive things about your sermon. Where are we now? 
Where? Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't even know where to go in the scriptures to help untangle you here because we're not even in God's word. You that was all just kind of opening thoughts. You know, the the things that kind you know, that, those were the uh, that was the um, the hors d'oeuvres prior to the main meal. You've got it all backwards, dude. God's word is the main meal. This other stuff, it should be used to help us better understand God's word. But now we're off in la la land and you're preaching about your own opinions. I'm sorry, but when you're uh, up behind the pulpit and the Bible is opened and you're supposed to be preaching the word of God, ixnay on the personal opinions, okay? Just not necessary. Bring us the word. What is this? Listen. Listen, the best thing that you can do as a single person, and if you think, man, he's been so hard on the singles, just listen to what I said to the married people a couple weeks ago. And, and if you only come to Saturday, you really missed out on Sunday. But anyway, but, but see, listen, the best thing you can do as a single person is to be on the lookout for someone, not the perfect person, not the one out of a million, billions, but, but to look for someone that you can be compatible with. Chapter and verse, Scott. Come on, give me... Can, can you... Where is that in 1 Corinthians 7? Finding someone whose, whose life and values and dreams and, and, and are headed in the same direction that your life is headed in. It's asking, you know, I think... That it's, it's such great advice. Can you leave that to, the, like, Dr. Phil and, and Oprah and, and the shows like that? You have a job to do here, man. Your job is to preach the word. You did it for 10 minutes. Hey, what is this other stuff? It's asking what kind of person do I want to spend the rest of my life with? I mean, it's paying attention to things like, um, like intelligence, for example. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. I mean, am I, am I looking for someone who is extremely analytical? Or... Am I looking for someone who maybe has more street smarts or, or book smarts or this intuitive intelligence? I mean, you got to think about that. How about personality? What kind of person do you want to, do you want to be spending the rest of your life with? I mean, finding someone who has a personality that will complement your own. That's why these pre-marriage tests that we do here at the Orchard are so powerful because I think they show us whether or not you're, you're compatible. Our hope is, though, that that just confirms that you are. Hopefully, if you get to that stage, you, you've already worked through a lot of this. But, but personality is important. Uh, you know, if you're a strong decision maker, then you might need to find someone who, who is a little bit more easygoing. Or, like me, marry someone who's also a strong decision maker and learn to work through a lot of conflict. <laughs> How about appearance? Oh, let's talk about appearance. First of all, is appearance important? Yes. I mean, don't marry someone you think's ugly. I mean, seriously. And the thing is, like, most people know what they're looking for a little bit when it comes to appearance. But I also think it's, <laughs> I also think it's very important to make sure that your physical requirements are your own and not just something you get this idea from Hollywood or films or whatever, right? <laughs> I had this friend of mine say, dude, I'm going to find me a woman who looks like Angelina Jolie. I said, no, you're not. You are not. You, you don't have a chance. I said, because here's the, you, you look more like Napoleon Dynamite than Brad Pitt. 
So forget Angelina Jolie, dude. You're going, you're going for like a 10, and you're a little... I'm not going to say what number, but you're not up down that way. You're scoot down this way. <laughs> Are you realistic? That's all I'm going to say about that. So we have to look at some of these types of things. We have to think about things like ambition, character, you know, creativity. What, what, are, what are their parenting right. goals? Uh, or, or... Uh, hang on a second here. I've got to do a little bit of biblical work here. Going back to the scene of the crime, because we have now, we've got evidence that uh, Scott Hodge can actually preach God's word. We've heard him do it. Unfortunately, in his mind, he doesn't think that was the preaching. He thinks this is preaching. He's 180 degrees backwards at this point. Got to straighten the boy out here. Hang on a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to start at verse 6 and uh, read the passage and see if we can mine it for some stuff here. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all of you were as myself am, that is, single. But each has his own gift from God, one, one of one kind and another of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. (laughs) There's your motivation. If you can't control yourself, get married. (laughs) For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, uh, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it were, they are holy." But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how uh, do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether or not you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches." Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him, uh, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was any at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition that he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For the one who was called in the Lord is, as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were born with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one... Uh, by whom the Lord's mercy is trustworthy, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, he's talking about some kind of a distress or persecution that was going on there. Um, He says, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will, will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. 
This is what I mean, brothers. The, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they, there were not, they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as, as, as though they were not rejoicing, but those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal as, uh, with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, uh, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong... And it has to be, uh, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, under no, necessary, uh, under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries uh, his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Now, this passage here is dealing with marriage and singleness, but what's the underlying central foundation of all of this? It's that we are in the Lord. And so even in discussing marriage, even in discussing the state of being single, the, the key issue is being is undivided devotion to the Lord. That's Paul's thing. And so if you're going to discuss singleness in light of a biblical passage like the one you just read, Scott, you really want to key in on where is Jesus Christ and how can we bring him out? What does undivided attention to the Lord look like? You could talk about that, or you could talk about the Lord's undivided attention, a devotion to us and his death for us on the cross, and that our response is repentance and gratitude for what he's done, and that how we're changed and how Christians, by abiding in the word, focusing on Christ, abiding in Christ, that that's what that devotion looks like. It's a, it's an undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, unfortunately, uh, Scott, what you've done here is you started off, you, you started off in la-la land, you got grounded in the word, and then you said you were going to preach. You were actually doing the preaching when you were in God's word, and the stuff that you're now doing, I have no idea what it is. You're not telling me what God's word says. You're just throwing out a bunch of psychological or personal opinions. It's not helping anybody anywhere know how, and Christ is completely missing. And the point of the passage that you read and taught on is undivided devotion to the Lord. So at this point, your sermon isn't even exemplifying undivided devotion to the Lord. You've divorced yourself from God's word in the middle of your sermon. Bad thing to do. Or desires 
authenticity. I mean, lots of things to think about when asking the question of what kind of person do I want to spend the rest of my life with? Okay, one more thing, though. Let me just say, since there's not just one in the entire universe, okay, that also means that this idea that God is going to somehow just supernaturally connect you or cause that person to walk up to you and say, I'm the one for you, since that's probably not going to happen, uh, that means you have to be somewhat intentional, a.k.a. date, okay? Date. Be intentional. I mean, pursue. The Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. He who finds, not just one day he's walking down the street and the wife drops off from heaven. Oh, hey. No, no. He who finds, you have to look. Now, let's go to the second myth, okay? Because the second myth, when you hear it, you're going to think, well, of course, duh, but let me just go there. Anyway, here's the second myth. It's this one. It's the myth that says, if I want to be married, then I must be ready to be married. Mm. If I want to be married, well, then I must be ready to be married. And I know that sounds like a very obvious myth, but I can't tell you how many couples I've known who wanted to be married. And so they just assumed they were ready to be married. And the fact is, that just is not always, that's not always the case. Just because you want to be married doesn't mean you are ready to be married. And so I think really uh, the the important question you have to ask yourself is, am I really, seriously, am I ready to be married? Am Am I mature enough to be married? Am I emotionally stable enough to be married? How am I doing spiritually? How am I doing socially? And see, it's not about age. <laughs> I mean, I know, look, I mean, I know, I know some 19-year-olds who are more ready to be married than some 39-year-olds. Look, I mean, and, and here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with waiting to get married and, and, and extending maybe your engagement or whatever it is so that you can work on some issues in your life. Uh, there's nothing wrong with hitting that pause button so you can work. I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather you hit the pause button before you get married so that you can work through some issues than have to deal with those issues on the other side. And so there's nothing wrong with waiting. And, and you know what? This is especially true with those who've been divorced and are looking to be remarried. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a whole other issue there. But it, it's really, it really is, I guess, the same thing. I mean, you, you really have to ask, am I really ready to be married again? And I'll tell you, it's especially important if there's kids in the mix. Because just remember, see, when it was just you and your first spouse, it was just you. Uh, you know, Scott, Dr. Laura does a far better job on these topics than you do. Why don't you leave that up to her and you can go back and do your job preaching the word. We've now, we now know that you can do it. <sighs> you and them, but now there's kids in the mix and getting remarried not only affects another person, but it affects your kids and it potentially, if they have kids, it affects their kids. And so you got to think about more than just yourself. Are my kids ready for me to take this step? Have I helped them to be ready? And, and here's the thing, listen, if, if you've been divorced, I, I just want to say, I believe there's great hope for you. I really do. I believe there's great hope. I believe that, that God will help you to find someone who is, who is uh, uh, wonderful and great and who you'll experience a beautiful relationship with. But, but please, please, for your own sake, and for those of you with children who have kids, for their sake too, please, please, listen, listen. Make sure that you've taken the time you need to make sure that you're getting emotionally and spiritually healthy. It's so important because remember, marriage is not... And how would we do that, Scott, uh, without God's word really here grounding us and tell you telling us what? <sighs> not a fix-all. Mm. It's not. 
Because remember, listen, an, un- an unhappy single person is going to be an unhappy what? Married person, right? I mean, a lonely single person is going to be a lonely married person. So, so, so learn to live well single, okay? But, and I'll tell you, in the long run, it may take a while, but in the long run, it will pay off. And your future relationship with that next person or that individual will be so much better off because you were ready. Okay, I got one more. And I saved the most uncomfortable one for last. Um, okay, and it's, it's a third myth, and it, it's like probably one of the most dangerous myths. And it's the myth that says, I must try before I buy. All right, little ears warning here. It sounds like we're getting, we're diving off into or running off into uh, <clears throat> inappropriate for children land. This is where I get a drink. <laughs> and it's not water. <laughs> I, I must try before I buy. This is the idea that says... Living together will prepare us for marriage. And it's a pretty popular idea, right? In fact, get this. Okay, U.S. Census Bureau reports that between the years of 1970 and the year 2000, the number of, of, of couples who were co, what's the word? Co, co, cohabitating went up 1,000% 30 years. Ten times. Is that right? Ten times more people. One thousand percent. And look, I know on the surface it seems like such a great idea. It just makes sense. Look, you'd never buy a car without test driving at first, would you? I mean, why, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? What's that saying about the person that you're getting ready to live with? Anyway... Listen, and, and I'm not saying being prepared is bad, because it's not. Being prepared is not a bad thing. I, I, in fact, I believe just the opposite. I believe, like, being prepared is, is very, very important. And, and in all seriousness, let me just say, I, look, I could not be more sympathetic to the intent of people who, who have this desire in their hearts to live together. Because, I mean, I know so many people have had parents. I mean, this, are, I mean most of my friends' parents were, were, uh, were divorced. Uh, Scott? Um just want to remind you, um, fornication is a sin. Right. You see, the, the people that are there, you're trying to convince them the whole try before you buy thing is not a good idea. It's a sin. Can you get to that point and, you know, boldly proclaim that it's a sin? Bring us the scriptures that show us a sin, it's a sin and convict the people who are there of their sin and offer them Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Or, or they've seen relationships fail as they've grown up. So I can understand that, that at the root of this is to do whatever they can to keep, uh, keep history from repeating itself. The problem is is that it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. The, the myth... Uh, you're a pastor. The problem is that trying before you buy doesn't work? Scott, hello? Um, uh, are you afraid to preach the truth? 
Are you uncomfortable doing your job? If so, you might want to uh, work on that or step aside and let somebody who is bold enough to speak the truth to do it. It doesn't work. And the Lord said, Do not try before you buy, because thus saith the Lord, it just doesn't worketh. Is that really what the Bible teaches here, Scott? It doesn't work. Come on. It's not true. As a matter of fact, I want to give you, I want to share two numbers with you, okay? Two numbers, um, because there have been all kinds of studies done to show this. In fact, University of Chicago, uh, Yale University, there have been demographic studies. But the first number is the number 50. Okay, 50. Studies say, okay, this is just one. Studies say that 50% of people who live together do not end up getting married. Okay, that's just one thing. Now, now of course, that's not, I don't, that's probably not shocking. To- uh, Scott, you're, why are you quoting statistics? What if, over the course of the next 20 years, there was a concerted effort on the part of, like, high schools and colleges to teach couples the skills necessary to, for them to, quote, make it better? And what if this, it, what you're saying, 50% currently don't make it? I mean, that's a, a coin toss right now. But what if they, if the society decided they're going to work on this and they're going to educate people and give them the stuff that they need in order to make these relationships last, and the number goes from 50 to 90 Statistics move over time. Remember, from 1970 to the year 2000, the number of people cohabitating went up 1,000%. It's completely possible that the cohabitation failure rate could go down or it could go up. It, it can move. And if we get a, a good success, success rate... Uh, then your reason, your reason here, it it doesn't work. Well, it works for fifty percent of the people already, man. Fifty percent of the people it already works for. <sighs> Most of us, and, and you could actually probably justify living together just based on that, because then you think, well, at least they didn't get married, right? Okay. Well, here's the second number. It's fifty. Same number. Fifty percent. And this is listen. This is how high, how much higher, okay, 50% higher the divorce rate is for those who live together before marriage compared to those who don't. And you know what? That's a pretty conservative number because there's actually uh, numbers that will point closer to 80, 90. There's even some that would say it's 100% higher if you live together that you're going to get a divorce than those who don't. And so I think that this whole idea of I must try before I buy, I think the heart behind it is good because usually it's about wanting to be prepared. But unfortunately, I think that it actually and more likely does just the opposite of that. Scott, are you a Christian pastor? Do you have your Bible in front of you? Open it up and turn to the passages that declare that this is a sin. I, mean, I, I hope we get there. It works against the relationship, and it's not. And see, it's not just because of the stats. No, I mean there, there there's another reason, and, and I think that other reason has to do with another myth that sits at the core of this myth. It's like the myth within the myth, okay? Um, and everyone knows this. It's like the elephant in the room, and, and it's where everyone really starts getting comfortable, uncomfortable. But it's the myth that says sex before marriage is really not a big deal. Okay. Okay. 
All right, it's not a big deal. It, you're going to say it's a big deal. Why? Can oh man, I you know, crossing my fingers here. I'm hoping I'm rooting for you, Scott. Come on here. Let's get me the sin thing here, and then give them Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and call them to repentance. And look, I know none of us want to come to church and hear a preacher stay on stage. None of us want to listen on the internet and hear a preacher say that uh, you know talk about premarital sex. Unless you have teenage daughters, then you want me to talk about premarital sex. But anyway, um, <laughs> and dad just made the teenage daughter very uncomfortable. Ah, yes. But Would you stop hemming and hawing and do your duty? Boldly proclaim the oracles of God. Tell us what God has said. It's not even your opinion. You don't even need to you just leave your opinion out of it. Just tell us what God says about it. But see, <laughs> wow, that's funny. But see, we need, we need to talk about this topic because everyone here knows, every one of us knows, look, everyone knows sex is one of the most powerful and mysterious and mind-boggling forces in the universe. Matter of fact, there was this uh, article in the Chicago Tribune a while back that had this headline. <laughs> uh, that's the best that you've got there, Scott. <sighs> Report links sex with amnesia. Something like that explains a lot. No, no, seriously, and I quote from the article. Let me just read it to you, okay? Sex can be so intense for some men that they may suffer temporary amnesia afterwards. Funny that it's only the men. Anyway, <laughs> John Hopkins, university physicians tell of men whose wives take them to the hospital shortly after sex, suffering from global amnesia. They recovered, but they had no memory of having sex. <laughs> Physical exertion during sex can create intense pressure on blood vessels in the brain explains the doctors. This causes a temporary lack of blood to the central part of the brain, resulting in amnesia. I know some of you are thinking right now, is that why he never called back? Did he, did he forget? What? <laughs> he must... Just remember, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the church in Laodicea. Must have forgotten. <laughs> Oh, and guys, listen, guys, don't try to leverage this to your advantage, okay? Seriously, I don't care how good it was last night. Don't, don't like, use us as an excuse when you forget to pick up the milk and the dry cleaning on the way home. Honey, it was just last night. It was so great. <laughs> look, look, listen, listen. We all know that sex, sex is such a powerful thing. And, and sex can be such a, a powerful gift uh -huh. when it's handled within the context of the marriage relationship. And why should I handle it within the context of a marriage relationship rather than just, you know, go out and be a stud, pretend I'm some kind of a stud horse and, you know, get every filly I can? But we also know it can also be very painful element, can't it? Painful? Um, Scott, have you heard of sin? Which is why I think breaking up with someone 
I mean, there's people that will say, well, you know, it's better to live together because, I mean, we'd rather break up than get divorced. I mean, breaking up is a lot going to be a lot less painful than getting divorced. Well, that's not necessarily true, actually. No, no. See, we, we, I mean, I, I know people who, who've, who've been divorced. I know people that, that have, have broken up. And I, I can tell you something. The pain, pain is pain sometimes. And it is hard. It's difficult. Which, and so I think that's why breaking up with someone after you've been involved sexually with them is, is one of the most difficult things you can go through. That's the elephant in the room? That's the elephant in the room, Scott? You've got to be kidding me. Oh, man. And see, and see, here's why I think that is. Do you guys, if you've ever been to a wedding, I mean, I think you all have, I would assume, right? But if you've ever been to a wedding, you, you've heard the preacher or the priest or whatever get up and he will say something, he'll quote from Genesis, that scripture that says, and for this reason a man shall leave uh, his father and mother and two shall become one flesh. You know that scripture? We've all heard that at weddings, right? That's from the book of Genesis. And, and later, Jesus actually quotes this, this same scripture when he's talking about the, the goodness of marriage. And, of course, just so you know, the idea of the two shall become one flesh, okay, that, that, is, okay, that doesn't just mean like the legal bonds. This is talking about sex, okay? But anyway, just, just to clarify. Anyway, uh, but, but here's something that I think is really interesting and I think probably explains why, why sex can, 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 outside of the marriage relationship, can be so harmful and, and hurtful. And I want to take you to 1 Corinthians, okay? Back to 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is addressing sexual immorality. And the, stay with me because this is huge. Part of the issue that he was addressing in this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 was uh, had, had to do with people who were engaged in prostitution. And, and this is what he says. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 6.16. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. Okay, now think about this, all right? It's talking and talking about having sex with a prostitute. Paul quotes the same passage in Genesis that Jesus uses about marriage. Now, of course, I don't think there's any of us here that would say that, hey, you know, sex with a prostitute, that's no big deal. No, 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 I think we all understand that, okay? But, but think about this for a second, okay? Okay, the scriptures refer to sex in marriage as two becoming one, and the scriptures call sex with a prostitute as two becoming one. Why? Here's why. Time to get out the Play-Doh. about to turn PG-13, so if you have... Play-Doh. Just regular... Just regular Play-Doh. Okay, see this? Regular Play-Doh, right? What happens? Man meets woman. Right? The guy is the girl. What's up? Not much. You look a little jaundiced. Well, haven't been in the tanning booth in a while. You go to a movie? Okay. So they go to a movie. They start dating. They start... And they start getting a little bit closer. They start getting a little bit closer. And what happens? What happens? I've heard people say 
just want to remind you, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the church in Laodicea. Too much of I don't know about that. There's many times that we've loved and we've shared love and made love. It doesn't seem to me like it's What happens? Things start getting mixed up. Things are things are things are different now, aren't they? Things are different. They look different from them before. And see, the scriptures tell us that this that this is what happens when two people united in marriage come together. But it also tells us that this is what happens when two people in a completely uncommitted and even illicit relationship have sex with each other. Same thing. And imagine, let's say there was just this line right here, okay? Let's say that this line represents, okay, let's say you've got this line, and over here represents, like, ultra-committed, okay? I mean, marriage Till death do us part. All right, got to pause here for a second. Again, we're dealing with a sensitive topic. Uh, little ears should not be listening. <laughs> Let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 19, which is important because at this point he's making a case that the reason why you shouldn't be doing this is because you come become one with the other person. That's really only half the story. Okay? That's oh man, it's it's not even the whole story. First Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Notice that what's missing from his presentation here is any discussion of sin and any discussion of the Lord. Let me continue. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the but sexual immoral, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is a sin. And it's, to talk about, I mean, do you think he's convincing anybody? Well, I, I mean, I'll be blunt. I'm a sinful guy. And if I'm a sinful single guy and I'm sitting in this church, you know what I'm hearing? Well, you know, he basically said that, you know, the two become one flesh, and that's, you know, and it makes breaking up really hard to do. 
and that you know there's a bigger failure rate. But you know, I I just disagree with him because you know he he just doesn't understand how difficult it is out there, and it's going to be okay for me if. I try before I buy, and my and you know my girl and I we end up you know getting into a happy marriage, and we last forever because uh, you know I was already one flesh with her already, and see that that as long as we make it, then it's okay. Let's say the other end represents a completely uncommitted, impersonal, illicit sex. All right, committed, not committed. Well, the scriptures tell us that what happens to become one when that commitment is right here, way over here, when that commitment is permanent, when it is as high as it can be. And the scriptures tell us that when the two become one, when the commitment is none, zero. And so here's a question. Doesn't it make sense that if it's true here and if it's true here, then wouldn't you think that it's also true here and here and here and every varying level in between the two spectrums? Scott, sin. Would it actually hurt you to say the word sin and to tell people that they are wicked and sinful when they're doing this and then give them Christ and him crucified for their sins. See, sex unites in a very in a very unique and special way. Thing is, when the two get pulled apart, it's not pretty, is it? No. And little little pieces of, of heart of what's in here gets pulled apart. It's left behind. Because see, when you're having sex, I mean, it's not just touching someone's body, right? Right? And sure, there, there are ways to protect yourself from disease and pregnancy. But you know what? You can't put a condom on your heart. Listen, God is pro-sex. you got to understand that. Oh, God, look, we've talked about this before. I mean, there's many of you who are, who are pregnant right now because I did a sermon on sex. And I challenged you to have lots of sex. And you're pregnant right now. Seriously. So many of you said we, that day, we know it, it was that day. So, hey, we're God's pro-sex. We've talked about it. God is the creator of sex. God wants us to have lots of sex with our husbands and wives. And if, and if you're sitting here right now going, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. Well, you probably need more sex <laughs> if, if you're married. Because, listen, because God knows how beautiful and how wonderful sex is can be when it's between the husband and the wife. And yet he also knows how painful and destructive it can be when it's outside of those confines. And see, that's why, that's why this myth, this myth that sounds so good and makes so much sense. And don't tell me, well, we live together, but we just don't have sex. You are lying and if you can live together and not have sex, then you need to write a book about it because that's amazing. But see, that, that's why this myth that sounds so good, it makes so much sense on the surface. It's why it is exactly that. A myth. And you know, God says, and we all know the opposite of a myth is what? Truth. And, and Jesus said something one time. He said, you will know the truth and the truth 
will make you free. And see, that's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for you, whether you're single. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. (sighs) Completely missing Jesus here. Um, Although he was mentioned... Whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're separated, whether you're widowed, God wants you to experience freedom that is found in truth. And so that's why at the end of the day, it's really all about Jesus, isn't it? Yes. Why? It is all about Jesus. Hooray. I'm glad you recognize that. How, why has he been mysteriously missing these 48 minutes? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's why at the end of the day, it really is about about listening to his voice and having the courage and the faith to obey his voice. Uh, But Scott, you you spent, uh, granted, for you, I mean, this is like a record, you you know, 10 minutes of your sermon actually preaching God's word. Um, And this is a 50-minute long sermon. So, what, one-fifth of the sermon was in in God's Word, and the other four-fifths were your own opinions and other stuff? How do people learn to hear Christ's Word and, quote, obey without somebody telling them and preaching to them what it is that Christ said? See, you were doing really well when you were in the Word, and you've wasted everyone's time. The uh, four, I mean, literally, four-fifths of this sermon, 80%, was off-topic. Voice. And so that's my prayer tonight. And, and it's my prayer, especially for those of you who are single, that you would be reminded tonight that you are loved and that you are accepted by God and that he has you right where he wants you at this very moment. Could that change? Sure, of course it can. But until it does, let's pray. Let's pray that God would help us to live. And not just to live, but God would help us to live well where we're at right now with purpose and with passion because that is living Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. All right, we're done. (laughs) All right, just want to remind you, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith was brought to you by the church in Laodicea. That's right, the church in Laodicea, the church that mixed the uh, culture with the the church, and as a result of it, had Jesus sitting outside basically calling them poor, naked, and uh, tepid. All right. Want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we actually depend upon you. And I do mean that in the most uh, serious way I could possibly put it. We do depend on you in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you, which means we need you to financially support us and continue to do so. You can uh, do that a couple of ways. Visit FightingForTheFaith.com, clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. And when you do, that allows you to send your gift in gift in via secure online credit card uh, processing, or you can uh, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So there you have it. That was a little bit of a mixed bag, although I got to give Scott Hodge some credit for uh, having more Bible in there than any of the other sermons we reviewed from him. I mean, you got, and he was preaching when he was doing it. 
uh, pray that God would uh, open his uh, eyes to the fact that his job is to preach the word always and all that other stuff that he was doing, that wasn't preaching. <sighs> and Christ wasn't exalted. Although mentioned at the end, you know, kind of slipped in there at the very end. I mean, the obligatory, oh yeah, hat tip to Jesus. <laughs> oh man. All right. Uh, if you would like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or look me up on Facebook. My name is Chris Rosebro. You can ask to be my friend. Or if you'd like to receive our subversive microblogging tweets via Twitter, the name there is Pirate Christian. Hey, until next week, may God bless you. Thank you.